Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hello, this is Whitney Lowe, and our opening sponsor today is Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work knowing we share the mission to bring the massage community enlivening content that advances our profession. They invite you to check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com. We thank Andrew Beal and the Books of Discovery team for their support, and be sure to check out their great offer for our Thinking Practitioner listeners. So, Till, how are you? Uh, have you been? I've been uh, pretty good for the for the shape I'm in and for the shape the world's in, you could say. All now, right, I mean, good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time. An interesting time continues, but no, I'm, I'm doing all right. Whitney, how about you? Doing well. We've had a, a bit of a time off break here. We've been doing some other solo interviews, which has been fun. Um, yeah. And we're uh, back together again today for some interesting deep dives. What are we into today? Well, I want to talk about headaches, in particular, cervicogenic headaches, or an interesting, almost from a Mendel's therapy point of view, third kind of headache. Not like we needed any more kinds because there are hundreds of officially recognized kinds of headaches. And there's certainly a lot of reasons to have headaches, but this one might be particularly relevant to our current state in the world, cervicogenic headaches, meaning headaches that uh, start or thought to start in the neck. Uh-huh. Okay. And, Cervico, uh, meaning neck, and yeah, yeah. genic, meaning Cervico origin, neck. Yep. Genic meaning you know, gen- being generated by or originating in okay. the neck. That's right. Yeah. So well, I'm curious to hear about this uh, new type of headache classification here. So what? Uh, let's, let's dive in and look at this a little bit. Tell us about... Um, Tell me about some of the types and, and uh, categories that we currently think about there. I will. And I should mention this is in our handout. We're, I'm just going to put this outline into a handout and put in some of the hands-on stuff we're going to talk about. And I'll give that URL now, but it's also in the show notes. The URL for the handout is a-t.tv slash ttp dash cgh. That's a-t, like advanced trainings.tv slash ttp, like the thinking practitioner dash CGH cervicogenic headaches. So check out that handout if you want to follow along or check out the techniques I'll be talking about. But Whitney, you asked about, uh, speaking of mouthfuls, that URL is kind of a mouthful. Think of that, uh, you did great on that new books of discovery spot. That's nice to hear what they're saying now. And it's great to have their support still. They've been such a great resource to our entire profession for so long. So indeed, thanks for yeah. enumerating what they're doing there. Yeah. But you were also asking about headache types, and yeah, you know this this may be a new type. It probably is a newer type, the cervicogenic type. The classic types 
are generally thought to be primary headaches and secondary headaches. The primary headaches are headaches that just kind of seem to be their own thing. They just kind of arise on their own. Sometimes they're called idiopathic headaches, meaning uh, no apparent cause. We're not sure about the cause. But in this case, primary means radiopathic. In this case, means they just seem to be their own condition. And classically, those include tension or myofascial headaches, and the other one being migraine and neurogenic headaches, and it also includes things like cluster headache, et cetera, hemocrino continua, things like that. They're in some uh, more rare forms of headaches in the migraine family. Yeah. Uh, and then secondary headaches, the other group of headaches, are headaches that are caused by another condition. And that's where it really starts to get numerous because there's so many things that cause headaches. And I think we've added for sure Zoom headaches as one of the yes, uh, newer types of secondary headaches. Right. But other things that, you know, other classic examples of secondary headaches could be things like a dehydration headache or a sinus headache or the long list of medical conditions that bring headaches along with it. And so I should, well, I'm thinking about it, mention it right here that uh, headaches are a sign often of something else going on. And it's always good to know what that is and know that you're uh, client or patient with a headache has been evaluated for some of those other things that might be causing their headache. Let me ask a question about the the categories here in terms yes. of uh, what we what we talk about when we say primary headaches that being tension or myofascial. So yeah. um, is that, would that you say in this category also include tension being, let's say, psychological tension, like just overall stress? Is that falling into this category as well? Are we speaking That's a mechanism. biomechanical? Yeah. Okay. No, that is a really good question. Are we talking about uh, psychological tension and, and being uptight? Or are we talking about mechanical tension on the tissue? Mm -hmm. And those are both mechanisms. The type of headache, pain itself, is called a tension headache, which uh, it does imply a mechanism, but isn't so much explaining the mechanism as a type of headache. Now, what's really weird for us as manual therapists is that's even considered a primary type of headache because we go, wait a minute, sure, if you're either psychologically stressed or mechanically tight, that's going to make your head hurt. That's not, and that's secondary to the mechanical tension or the psychological stress. Yeah. So this this uh, categorization, which is really commonly used, is the main one used in conventional medicine doesn't make a lot of sense for us as manual therapists. This is actually a classification system that was designed by neurologists to understand what class of drugs to prescribe. Oh, interesting. another way to think about it. Uh -huh. But it's, it's an attempt to say, okay, so what headaches just seem to be their own thing? Yeah. In our point of view, actually, the tension headaches don't. We think the, headache, the tension headache becomes because someone's tight, either yeah. issue-wise or stressed. Mm -hmm. Now, migraines are a little more tricky because we are still figuring out the migraine story and our explanation for it evolves. And even just in the last couple of decades, we have a very different explanation for what causes a migraine, the mechanism behind a migraine. And you could say it's harder, it's it's closer to something that just arises on its own. It seems to be like brain activity that just mm -hmm. causes the migraine, for example. Yeah. So so I was yeah. going to ask too, um, when we when we look at these kinds of things, we're going to talk um, a little bit more as we delve into this in, in terms of mechanisms of what manual therapy um, may do with some of these things, because clearly um, I think this is another area where we don't really understand some of why some of the things that we do may work in certain kinds of situations with some of yeah. these that might seem to be you know being caused by other factors that you know there's not a real clear cut mechanism of of. Ac action there for our manual therapy, but it works. 
And yeah, and you're making me think, why do I even need to know what type of headache it is? Mm-hmm. And uh, as a as a manual therapy, as a massage therapist, or structural integration practitioner, whatever, I can actually uh, work them in different ways, and my expectations can be tuned to the type it might be. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, in the headache training we do, we go into this in more detail. But it's not to diagnose it and decide this is what the headache is, because they say about half of people that are told they have migraines don't. And half of the people that do have migraines are missed in the diagnosis. So it's pretty hard to actually diagnose something like a migraine. Yeah. But in terms of a strategic uh, starting place or working hypothesis as a hands-on therapist, these categories are, are actually useful, partly because, like you said, the mechanism can be different in each case and the way we approach it can be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shall I say something about prevalence? Should I say something? Yeah, about let's how? let's let's talk about that a little bit. Like how, because this is something we have to think about in the clinic. You know, what might we be seeing because of how frequent yeah. it is? Yeah, That's so right. yeah, how many people are walking in with this going on? So tension yeah. headaches. They say about almost forty percent of people get one every year. In one given year, about forty percent of people will have a headache. Through their lifetime, ninety percent plus people will have a tension headache. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing number to me because that implies that ten percent of people don't yes, <laughs> ever right. have attention headache, which is yeah, and it's true. When I have large groups of people and I've asked this question, raise your hand if you've never had a headache. There's a there's a number of people that raise their hand. Really, God bless them. Yeah, that is amazing. Solved. Who knows yeah, what that... other problems they have in life? But that's you know, yeah. there's that at least they don't have the headache problem. Huh? Migraine migraine incident. Oh, sorry, migraine prevalence rather twelve to fourteen percent in North America. Now, it varies quite a bit around the world. We're down to a low of like 1.5% in Hong Kong. So one Do you think that's based rate. on categorical reporting or what would make those kinds of statistics vary that yeah, significantly? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's even sometimes they wonder about translation. You know, uh-huh. if you're doing the study in different language and you're assessing for migraine transit in a different language, are we assessing for the same thing? Yeah. So it could be that the differences around the world are due to either different ways it's categorized or even language differences. But the studies that have tried to correct for those factors do show quite a bit of variation around the world with Asia and Africa being the places in the world with far less incident migraines. Uh, and then Peru being the migraine capital of the world with around 32% of people having migraines there at some point. Now that's life. fascinating. Yeah. You yeah. got to wonder what that's about. You know, I wonder too, you know, how much of this is, like you said, culturally um, infused with yeah. what it's okay to talk about. Like in some cultures, it's really sort of not so okay to be uh, complaining of pain. So a lot of people may underreport in those kinds of cultures. So well, now we're talking like a whole episode right there. I mean, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah there's an episode at least around migraines, but yeah, it's it's the way that we talk about pain and what's reported is a big topic. Yeah. I think so then, it was um, Doug Nelson, I think, said something to me one time. He's a, He is of uh, Scandinavian yeah. uh, descent, and he said in his uh, familial culture or in the culture there, apparently it's not so easy to talk about or encouraged to talk about being in pain. And he said, yeah, yeah, there's a saying that they have about like something really hurts. Like it hurts so bad. I almost said something about it. So <laughs> That's right. There, That's there may right. be that uh, reporting factor coming in uh, with some of this, but the Peru thing is really interesting. I have to look at, you know, what this has to do with. Well, I'm, I'm resisting that rabbit hole because we're actually not talking about migraines today. We're going to talk about yeah. uh, cervical genic headaches, yeah. which uh, while we're talking prevalence, 
is something like two to four percent of people in any given year, although that varies by researcher because of probably definition. And it could be up to like 20% of people at some point in their life have a cervicogenic headache. According to yeah, you know, I saw those prevalence statistics, and to me, that really seems low, um, yeah. at least from what from the lens of bias that I look through of the people that we see with, you know, postural challenges or hypertonic, you know, cervical muscles and corresponding headaches at the same time. Yeah. And maybe that's a self-selection criteria of who who comes to see us is is that group of people. Well, that that, so. yeah. I, well, I think, honestly, Whitney, I think it may be the study's definition of cervicogenic because, again, we go back to our idea of a tension headache. As hands-on therapists, we see all kinds of headaches that respond when we lower people's tension. could mm -hmm. be that we see all kinds of headaches that get better when we reduce what's the difficulty their necks are going through. Yeah. Right. They aren't in the official classifications of cervicogenic headaches, eh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the traditional classification, or let's say the working definition for cervicogenic headaches is a headache that has its origin in the neck somehow and is related to the uh, some kind of dysfunction in quotes in the neck. Yeah, right. But a headache that gets better when you work the neck is also a diagnostic criteria. And that's we find a lot of those. We find a lot of headaches that get better when you work the neck. For various reasons. And so if it does, um, does that sort of or automatically classify that as being cervicogenic? If you're saying, well, we did something to the neck and the headache improved, it must have been coming from the neck. Or well, for the purposes of a study, probably not. But yeah. for the purposes of my practice, good enough for me. Yeah. You know, if I can right. make it better uh, through, then I got it. We're done. Yeah. Right. And there does seem to be quite a bit of power the neck has. There are, I should mention on the other side, there are stories of people's migraines being worsened by neck work. Mm -hmm. So it's something to be cautious if you suspect a migraine, like the, some of the, especially the visual disturbances or nausea. Those are, you know, kind of go slow signs where you be cautious with neck work to see how that goes. But yeah, other than that, a lot of headaches get better when you work the neck, including tension headaches. Yeah. And quite likely, like so many things that we encounter around the body, it's probably not one single thing doing it. Lots of times it's probably a, a conjunction of factors of what we're doing with the manual therapy and the room and the lighting and the soft music or whatever the things are that we're pulling together to to help them. You know, question might be, is it is it a... Uh, you know, footogenic headache. If a person has a headache and you work their feet and their headache goes away, you know, so. Nice. Um, yeah. New classification. We needed that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but that's true. That's right. Yeah. That's a good point. Because mm -hmm. well, there's a lot uh, of that. I mean, I think that happens a, a fair amount, you know. It does. No, no, absolutely. And the way in isn't always what we expect. And there are, you know, our imagined mechanism isn't always the, the strategy that's the most effective in our work, too. Mm -hmm. So that's that's definitely the case with headaches. There's lots of things that help headaches. In fact, back to that primary secondary thing, conventionally it's thought that you know things like manual therapy would be better at secondary headaches than they would at primary headaches. And primary headaches are just their own thing. But most people involved in manual therapy know that you can do a lot for a primary for a tension headache, as we said. We can actually yeah. do a light a lot for a dehydration headache. Someone hasn't been drinking water, they show up in my practice. I can often relieve their headache. Now, guess how quickly it's going to come back, you know, really quickly if they don't drink more water. Yeah. But that's that's probably the case for a lot of these 
headaches too. That if there, especially if there is contributors, either an underlying cause like dehydration, or even like you said, the way I'm standing, sitting, moving, the amount of time I'm sitting on Zoom, that headache's going to be more likely to return if those aren't changed. Also, yeah. So as we look at some of these different things, you know, we've talked about some of these um, classifications that may be helpful for us. Where do you see um, does does the classification significantly change the way you work? Um, do you see that making a big um, shift in the way you approach an individual? Um, yeah. On this well, just on a really on a simple level, if they have visual disturbance or nausea, I'm suspecting my working hypothesis is that it may be a migraine type headache, in which case my goals are different. My approach is different. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot to say about that. We're not doing the migraine episode. But if, if they have a pain in their neck, if this is the classic sign of a cervicogenic headache, if they have a pain that starts in their neck and moves to their head, I think, okay, cervicogenic starts in the neck. And so let's approach it as perhaps something that it's involving either uh, sensitivity in the neck or movement restriction in the neck. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the way I distinguish those. Now, the complicating thing, of course, is that there's a lot of overlap between these classifications or people have more than one at once. So that people that have a headache starts in the neck will sometimes have a visual disturbance too. There are mm-hmm. migraine-like symptoms that come with a cervicogenic headache sometimes. But that's, yeah. I mean, we can simplify it again to that working strategy. As a manual therapist, if someone says my headache started in my neck and moved up, I'm going to start in the neck too, or at least I'm going to start in the neck in my thinking. You know, I might not actually go touch the neck first, but that's that's the primary place of interest for me. In this yeah, and so the uh, one of the papers that we're going to reference here in in the show notes is talking about you know recognizing those um, cervicogenic headaches uh, had some interesting things in it about methods to sort of evaluate this and recognize that. So um, uh, let's talk a little bit about about some of those. What are some of those key characteristics that we would tend to see as uh, clinical um, pieces that we might evaluate uh, being something to indicate cervicogenic involvement versus some of the other types? That's an important thing too. It's like, what are the characteristics of cervicogenic headaches? How do we recognize them? It's like I mentioned, they start in the neck as stiffness as painful movement or as tenderness in the neck. The point tenderness thing is is complicated because a lot of people are sensitive on the neck if you poke, poke them. But for sure, a neck that's stiff and then turns into a headache or has painful movement, that's probably a cervicogenic, like I said. Unilateral, meaning it's just one side of the head, especially when the pain in the head is on the same side as the neck. People yeah. will have some sometimes some neck stiffness that comes up as their migraine, appears, but if the pain switch sides to the side of the head, it's probably not, uh, the neck isn't probably the major contributor there. And one thing I wanted to to um, also put in here that I can't remember if we said this when we were defining them. I think you mentioned this at the, at the beginning, but just in case we didn't, uh, and to go over again, that a lot of the classification of the cervicogenic headaches focus on primarily what appears to be some type of manual or uh, some type of uh, dysfunctional either mechanics or involvement of the first three cervical vertebra region as opposed to the entire neck that uh, for some reason or other that's emphasized a bit more. I would yeah. like to believe that probably a lot of times it's involving a lot more of it, but there, well, there does seem to be some stuff in the literature focusing on those top three vertebra. They're the ones that move the most. 
There yeah. are also the joints where the occipital nerves exit and go up to the back of the head. So headaches involving the back of the head are probably involving those occipital nerves that are exiting between C1, 2, 3. Mm-hmm. And so classically, yeah, that's the zone of the neck that's thought to be involved in cervical genetics, the upper cervicals. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can, and, and some of the tree, like Toby Hall's paper, which is really cool, the one we're going to link to in the show notes, uh, Hall 2010, we'll put that in the show notes there. Or actually, it's 20, 2008. Yeah, 2008. Uh, he's, he's focusing on the joints quite a bit. He's, you know, his, his style emphasizes joint sensitivity or joint mechanics. Yeah. And so that's a classic way that cervicogenic headaches are thought about too as a joint issue. But it, if you dig into it a little more, there's lots of recognition that there's other tissues that can be sensitized or be nociceptive drivers, as you the term you've called it, mm. like the superficial fascia or the skin itself or the intermuscular septa. Or the neural tissues of the neck, the nerves themselves, or even the vasculature deeper in the neck, can be um, you know sources of that nociceptive pain. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of those those uh, particular tissues, it, it is interesting. You know, I I see this a lot in a good bit of the literature that comes from some of those other fields that are focused on spinal manipulative therapy. That there is a focus, a big focus on the joint structures and the innervated capsular tissues and the the, yep. the the functioning of those joints, sometimes, in my opinion, at the expense of looking at the role of some of the other soft tissues that are around yeah, there. Yeah, we needed uh, soft tissue therapists to do that research. We do. Because that's, yeah. well, that's what we do. Uh, that's what, yeah. I mean, when I read those, I think, okay, this was done by somebody who's trained in joint manipulation. Yeah. And we that's, that's fair. We're looking for the ways that the work we know and the work we do has effects or doesn't have effects. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there's, there's more and more soft tissue research coming up, but we haven't caught up to all of the joint-based research, you could say. Yeah. And what, what you had mentioned too about the, the symptoms that people tend to, to <clears throat> present with, yeah. especially because you know the vast majority of our neck rotation is happening at the very top levels of the cervical vertebra. That's where the, the motion restrictions may tend to show up. So that's a good way to look at potential cervicogenic involvement uh, for sure. Well... Motion uh, restriction is a whole topic in itself, but that's yeah. true. That th- there is more motion on average in people's upper cervical spines, and it's that motion, it's the upper the upper cervical spine that's being focused on as cervicogenic headaches. Yeah, sure. but no, I'm absolutely with you, Whitney. That sometimes you work down the base of the neck or way out in the side of the neck, and someone headaches, someone's headache gets better too. Yeah, probably cervicogenic as well. You know, one of the most common things that we hear, at least in our profession, in terms of, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word blame, but causal effects, perhaps, for mm. people having headaches is yeah. forward head posture. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the role of, of forward head posture in driving cervicogenic pain problems and headache uh, involvement? Well, I mean, uh, Toby Hall said it well. He said that forward head posture is pretty common. And it's been really difficult in a research sense to correlate with headaches. It's not like more people with forward head posture have more headaches. So it's hard to say it's like a major cause or the holy grail or the main thing. But it does seem to be a factor, especially in individuals. Like if your headache gets worse when you do a lot of sitting, looking at a screen, some of that might be the mechanical effects of having your head forward from your body. Yep. Yeah. 
Now, what's interesting too is that corrective exercises thought, thought to reposition the head also haven't been shown to always decrease people's pain. Mm-hmm. So you look at it the other way around too. Things that actually train people and help people practice not having head forward posture don't always make the headaches better either. So yeah. it could be a factor, but I don't think it's like always the factor. Mm-hmm. Not the necessarily be all end all. And, you know, it's, it's interesting too. I always, this is one of the secret things that you can kind of never know, but in the, the physical medicine approaches, which try to focus on getting somebody to adapt new and different postures or new mechanical patterns. Let's say, you know, stop doing so much forward head posture while you're sitting at your desk, looking at the computer mm-hmm. and you teach the patient or the individual to do some of these things. But the big uh, enchilada there is how much compliance is there really with them doing that and making those kinds of changes? Uh-huh. Once they get out of- meaning, do they actually do what you've recommended yeah. or suggested that they do? Yeah, because I, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that a lot of those things are repeated um, neuromuscular patterns that have to be reinforced over and over and over again a lot. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. a walking example of that because I, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy about the role of posture and pain and how does, let's say something like forward head posture contribute to pain. But I know for me personally, what are you a walking example of? I'm waiting. I I can't wait to hear this. What is of you forward head posture causing pain? Yes. Um, Yeah. Uh, Because um, I have habitual patterns that I think started in my um, adolescent years because I was a saxophone player and wore a heavy saxophone around my neck. Oh yeah. A lot. There you go. And when I was growing, so I've always had forward head posture, but the more I'm doing things for long periods in that position, like when I stand at the kitchen counter and cook dinner and chop vegetables and do things for 45 minutes or something, my back hurts in relatively short period of time. And it's muscular. It is absolutely clearly muscular and it can, I can stop it from hurting by changing my head position. And so I try to be attentive to that change over and over again, but it's not easy. And it's one of those compliance things that I know uh, has to be reinforced every day, every time I do that to, to make those kind of changes. So in your study of yourself, you're, you do notice that head forward posture correlates with pain and that patient compliance correlates with an improvement. That when you do the things that you know can help, they, they help. Yeah. No, that sounds fair. Fair enough. And that, and me too. Yeah. I've actually heard that wearing a heavy sacks on a lanyard there around your neck is a great corrective for head backward posture. Uh-huh. It actually pulls your head forward so much. I'm kidding about that. Cause no, that's a, that's a big thing to hold uh, that weight. But then, no, I think yeah. so much of what we do is frontally oriented mm-hmm. and then the whole nature of the front of the body, we kind of curl around it perhaps for various reasons, uh, that that's the tendency. There's a whole lot more forward head posture. And at some point, whether it's the 42-pound head idea of Eric Dalton's or what, I don't know. But at some point, that mechanical forces of having your head forward are likely to cause more strain and more work. That's really just kind of seems true. Now, when we go backwards and try to um, reverse engineer that and say, if we just do our uh, backwards head postures, like learn how to play the saxophone behind your back or something. Hey, there uh, you go. Right. Yeah. Is that going to help? That's more complicated. And you're right. Com- patient compliance is a big variable in there. 
But then there's also all multi-causal factors in there too. Well, with like with cervical hygienic headaches, it's actually uh, what has been more clearly correlated to that headache than forward head posture is is pain with rotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can have pain with retraction, actually pulling your head back, like you are doing the head backwards position. You are being a compliant patient. That gives people some people's headaches. That's still a cervicogenic headache. Yeah. Right? Active retraction of the head. Yeah. And you know, I, I think some of these evaluation things too are made a bit more challenging in that uh, a lot of times, you know, we're looking for things that would reproduce or, or exacerbate an existing pain complaint and like the, the mobility limitations in, in the rotational movements. I've seen this, you know, frequently where somebody will have headache pain and limited movement in the cervical region. And we might think, okay, this is some, somewhat cervicogenic uh, oriented, yeah. but the, the rotational movements don't make the pain worse. They're just limited movement. Um, yes, that's right. And we work on that's the right. movement, free the movement up, get that person to have greater range of motion, and then the headache improves. So, that's right. But the, the dysfunctional movement doesn't produce an increase in pain necessarily. No, in fact, you know, uh, there's a st- studies that show people with headaches don't have less movement with their neck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're actually, people with headaches have the same movement. Yeah. Neck. So it's not like the it's the necessarily that the change in movement is causing the headache, which is too bad because as manual therapists or massage therapists, whatever, we're used to feeling movement. And if we can find a movement that's restricted, often when we get that to move more, people feel better. So that leads us to believe that uh, people not feeling good is equal to a movement restriction. And what you're saying is, no, that's not always the case. Yeah, right. And that's a big shift, by the way, in just the way we think about it as therapists, too. Yeah. So as we um, talk about this in terms of like, I mean, clearly there's things that we would do in the treatment room with people that would be helpful for them with a little, you know, a wide variety of manual therapy approaches that mm-hmm. we might make. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about that patient compliance piece, what kind of like self-care things do you see helping people um mostly with with that kind of stuff because i think there's a lot of things that people could well, be doing it that would be there are and i want to talk about that but i'm, I'm a little stuck on my outline there so i want to talk a little more about sensitivity is that oh yeah is okay. that okay yeah so uh if if there's okay someone comes in with a headache there is uh, some classic tests you can do like the flexion rotation test which i'll put a picture in the handout that will show you movement differences, rotation differences from side to side. If you yeah, flex, can you briefly explain that yeah, for everybody? Just gosh, also for those that don't get to look at the handout. That's right. Client is either it. sitting or supine. Let's say they're lying supine, face up on the table. If you lift the head gently into some cervical flexion, so like chin to chest in a position of comfort, and then in that position, rotate the head. That's the flexion rotation test. Now, the flexing the neck, bringing the chin to the chest, is thought to immobilize most of the joints in the neck, except for uh, C1, C2. Because of the angle of its facets, it actually turns really freely, even in flexion, even when the rest of the neck's in flexion, while the other ones have their movement inhibited by being in flexion. So that test tends to isolate the movement into C1, C2. Yeah. So you put someone in flexion, bring their chin to the chest, gently rotate their head, and you look and you can use their nose as a dial and see, does it turn more one way than the other? Mobility testing. Uh, so far, so good. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool because when you can see it that tangibly and you can do things that you see a change really dramatically, it's kind of exciting. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, the trend, as you mentioned, in 
in manual therapy in general, but in uh, our field in particular, is to orient around sensitivity or pain more than just mobility. That that seems more directly related to people's experience and their symptoms and seems to actually have more useful effects. So even more interesting to me is when I do that flexion rotation test and turn the head and they go, oh yeah, there's my headache pain. Uh-huh. Then I where go, it isn't, in fact, reproducing it. That's yeah. right. We're reproducing it. Or we're provoking it. Then I think, bingo, we, we've caught a fish, which mm-hmm. is the opposite way that most of our instincts say, let's do something that makes it feel better. But if mm-hmm. I find something that actually provokes it a little bit or reminds someone of the feeling, then I go, okay, we're on to, we're doing a movement that's relevant to their pain in some way. So from a, the sort of biopsychosocial perspective of, of getting the client on board with what we're doing, um, it sounds like what you're saying here too is there. this is kind of the value in letting the patient or client that you're working with understand there is a, an evaluation or assessment process that you're doing and that is going to drive your choice of how you're going to address this with them in the future um, in a way that uh, gets them on board with saying like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with having some discomfort because you're exploring where this is for me and I'm okay knowing that this is going to feel yeah. better, hopefully, when you start working with me. Well, that's, I, yeah, you're, 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 yes. And mm-hmm. um, I think of it actually as me getting on board with them. Mm-hmm. So it's not just me getting on, them getting on board with me so that I can challenge them in some other areas, maybe so. But it's also me getting on board with what's most important to them. If they're coming to me with a headache, uh, I I could be missing the boat by just focusing on a on a map or a paradigm that doesn't really match what they're experiencing. I yeah. could be doing a really sophisticated, high level protocol that if they don't feel any difference, they're not on board with at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not, in some sense I haven't got on board with them. If I can do something that lets them know, oh, here's exactly what you're complaining about. Feel that then? Didn't they know that I'm on board with them? And so then, yeah, from there, I'll proceed with things to actually shift their pain experience, not mm-hmm. to shift their mobility or shift their craniosacral rhythm or shift their fascial glide or whatever other mechanism I might be postulating would be affecting their pain. And, you know, for those who may have missed the uh, episode, we did a couple issues back there with Mark Bishop talking about uh, expectations. Mm-hmm. This is a great place to sort of tie some of that in. Of of looking at the role of of the expectation of your treatment or of those some of those kinds of outcomes being less dependent on what you are physically doing and changing the tissues and and like you said getting on board and getting on the same train with them. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, if, yeah they, if they if they feel that I'm doing something that's related to the headache, then you're saying that might align with their expectation for improvement. Yeah, and I think that has potential um, positive outcomes for us uh, for sure. Okay, so I made a little list of ways that I work with sensitivity. Yeah, that are different, or you know, maybe similar. They have some overlap. The ways we work with tissue, but really, when I find something that's sensitive, no matter where it's in the body, often I think about calming the autonomics, the autonomic reaction to that sensitivity, because so much of the suffering we have with pain is our reaction to pain. Mm-hmm. So if I can help calm someone's general fight or flight reaction, the autonomic reaction, then that helps pain diminish, but also helps my reaction to the pain be less disturbing. Then what would you, do you have like, uh, what would you say are some of the best strategies for encouraging that autonomic calming? Oh gosh. I mean, everything you and I know professionally is aimed to that in some ways. So but the probably best strategy, not like direct to potament on their, uh, on their neck. Eh, with the, 
a sharp tool, that probably won't work. Right? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And um, things that are painful don't tend to, in, yeah. you know, they don't tend to calm the sympathetic measurements we can do. Like they don't lower blood pressure, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah, things that are painful don't tend to do that. But it's it's hard to generalize because there are things that are deep and things that are kind of even dramatic and extreme that in, that actually do calm the nervous system in mm -hmm. a weird way. Yeah. But it's you know it's not as simple as like let's uh, push here and the autonomic nervous system gets calmed. It's all those things we've mentioned that we do. Yeah. And the way and, we do it especially. Yeah. Patient specific that it differs from one person to the next as well. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But I think I think most professionals listening to the podcast will have some idea about how to calm the nervous system. Yeah. I think and if so. you don't, maybe we should uh, you know, write us in. We'll do a whole episode on it or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So, yes, proceed there. <laughs> Descending modulation. We talked about that. It's all the ways that the brain, and that's some of what Mark Bishop was talking about, too, the way the brain, the, the client's brain can literally turn down the signal uh, coming from the body, the nociceptive signal is essentially uh, inhibit or downwardly modulate that signal. And that comes from, like you said, expectations. It comes from context. It comes from the ways, the meaning that the treatment has, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And much more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sensory refinement is number three on my list there. If you're following along the outline, that's just the, the way, the fact that if I feel things um, more, they hurt less in a weird paradoxical way. You could think of something that hurts. It's like a headache being overwhelming sensation. Well, what's really bizarre is if I take time to, in most headaches, you can't always do with every headache. And sometimes it takes someone else's help. But if I can get really precise about exactly where it hurts, what it's like, and take time to really turn towards the sensation as the person having the headache and get refined about where, what it's like, often that pain intensity diminishes. And if the intensity doesn't diminish, then certainly the unpleasantness does. And it's interesting as you're going through this list, I'm, I'm having these sort of uh, callback awareness to some of our previous episodes. So now this is making me think about the homunculus yeah. um, in the recent episode that we just did about the, the little man in the brain. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, the that sensory refinement of uh, the, the cortical smudging that we talked about of trying to sharpen that map of where That's things right. are by the sensory uh, attunement that that you're that you're talking about here. I think that's a, a, a really key factor in many of these situations. Yeah, it is. That's right. Yeah. Unsmudging by getting it really defined in my awareness, but also the recoloring idea from that episode to the idea that we could actually just recolor that coloring book of the brain with a slightly different shade. Mm -hmm. And that's some yeah. of that last one on that list too, the remapping, the reevaluation re and reframing. If someone feels their headache pain get better, often just that experience helps them understand it better. They realize there's not like something broke in my brain, for example, or it's not a, it's not a hopeless situation, that just having some relief, even temporarily, can help people shift the way they uh, react and think about their headache pain. Yeah. yeah that's a... That's a big topic, but there's lots of ways that our work does that helps people remap, reevaluate, reframe the pain experience. Yeah. Nice. So key factors there on sensitivity. Anything else um, on that piece that we'd want to look at regarding that? Well, you've referred to it, but I'm just going to hit that point in the outline too, that their headaches in general are really responsive to contextual factors. 
all uh, pain yeah. is really not you know, most pain, yeah. but especially headaches. In fact, some of the most interesting placebo research, uh, it comes out of uh, uh, Bernadetti's clinic in Italy, in the Italian Alps, where if you take someone up high altitude, a lot of people have headaches. So he uses that, invites them up to his high clinic to do placebo research, where he does essentially all these different contextual interventions and experiments to see which ones make their altitude-induced headaches better. And it turns out that quite a few of them do. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, we do know context is key. Context is key for us in so many instances there. Context, relationship, expectations, on and on down that list. Yep. Yeah. So let's uh, go back. We were going to talk a moment ago. I'd asked you about some um, self-care factors there. And yeah. uh, we uh, cleaned up a lot of additional things in in the sensitivity piece. What do you think about some some of the most helpful self-care things to get the motivated client moving and doing the things that we need for them to do? For event, well, motivated or not, maybe that is where it starts. It's like yeah. is assessing motivation. But prevention is the best cure. So anything you can do to reconfigure your triggers, your environment, your context, even if it's just changing your desk, you know, lowering your monitor, raising your monitor, whatever, getting a better chair, getting yeah. lighting, whatever, you know, moving around, uh, that can help really quite a bit with the self-care piece, as well as everything we know about, you know, get up and move, don't always sit in the same way. It isn't the magic chair. Maybe it's the magic two or three chairs or seating arrangements that you use to keep yeah. things varied up. And it's the getting up and, and changing chairs that also all right <laughs> as well. It's it's the the moving around kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, when we when we get down to these, when we finally get these high level studies on Zoom headaches, I think they're going to find that part of the factor is that this online world just takes us right out of our sense of time and sense of our body. Yeah. So that meanwhile, our body is in time and is in a is a. It's a, uh, objective reality and having all sorts of effects so that to remember your body to come back to it and move it around some too. Yeah. Right. Strengthening is an interesting place. Uh, you know, physical therapy would focus to traditionally quite a bit on strengthening for someone who had cervicogenic headaches. turns out that a lot of the strengthening exercise, like I mentioned for forward head posture and such, don't, uh, help with cervicogenic headaches any more than just general exercise and strengthening does. So just, yeah. just working out with uh, anything you do that uh, feels good that you do turns out to have a bigger effect on headaches than in, than the best uh, possible exercise that you don't do. So the yeah. exercise you do is the one that's going to really help in a, any kind of strengthening there. The upper limb. You know, this, yeah, been one of my sort of pet peeves and, you know, picking on a little bit some of the approaches that are they're done frequently within the physiotherapy world of looking at, for example, postural imbalances like the forward head posture and saying, well, your head is forward, so you need to strengthen those muscles that are opposing that particular movement to get back in balance. But this, to me, seems to go so frequently back to the issue of like people in many instances don't really have a strength deficit. What they have is a motor control problem that has to do with reminding themselves to be in proper positions or in different positions and things like that, much more so than there's a, a strength deficit, you know? Yes. And that is complex. And that's one of the, I mean, one of the arguments is the way strength training helps is it helps us be more aware of our body and more likely to feel and thus yeah, remember and have better motor control. Yeah. Uh, that's one point of view. Of course, the 
the rolfing, I could say there's not one rolfing perspective around this, but one of the interesting promises of Ida Rolf's perspective was that it wasn't about motor control. It wasn't about remembering to hold yourself in the right posture, that when you were actually able to build support in the body and build adaptability, that that was self-perpetuating. And there's mm-hmm. something really fascinating about that that premise, and then the results of the work too. When you set, when you get people in their body, you get them adaptable. You get them so that there's a sense they can find a sense of support to rest into. It becomes less about control, less about holding. Yeah, and the promise there is even that it's less about remembering. Now, of course, we run into um, the problem that pin people then expect to be simply placed into a correct posture, and then that's going to stick and stay there. And that doesn't happen either. There's there is a role of our own responsibility for our, uh, you could say, posture or movement or getting up and moving, that no manual therapist can provide. Really. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think too many of the people who come to us want us to do something to them mm-hmm. to make this change, and that's not always um, a feasible uh, outcome there because so much of it does involve the participation uh, as opposed to us doing something to them. Well, that's a topic I do want to talk to you about, participation. How do we inspire our clients to own that process from their side as well? Mm -hmm. And then also really interesting is what gets in the way of that. And I'm not quite sure which order these episodes are going to come out. So it's possible this conversation we have now, I will have talked you into that episode before this comes out, but I don't know. But I want to have an episode around... What gets in the way of us doing the things we want to do? Yeah. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Well, one more self-care before we uh, move toward the close here. That's yeah. the that's the mulligan snag for mm-hmm. cervicogenic headaches. And if you just have a strap, a dog leash, or I just took my belt off to kind of show you here on the video, mm-hmm. just a, a, like you could say a belt or yoga strap around your, say, C1 area that is the top of your neck, just under your skull. If you... Pull forward, say, with one hand. That helps you rotate to the opposite direction. And so then if I pull down with the other hand, that helps anchor that strap in place such that I can really, from the outside in, help the turning of that C1 vertebrae with the strap. Mm-hmm. So, Like in my case, I'm pulling forward on the right with my belt right under the base of my skull, pulling down with my left, and that's rotating my head to the left. That simple exercise and then breathing and relaxing there for mm-hmm. like, say three seconds or so coming out and repeating that that's been shown to really help people with cervicogenic headaches. You do it both ways, especially, but you, especially focusing on the, on the painful direction mm-hmm. that just repeating that. And then this, and then, and, you know, Toby Hall's study, it was uh, sustained for three seconds, twice times a day for 12 weeks, significant changes in people's cervicogenic headaches, just from doing that simple exercise, the mulligan yeah. snag. Yeah. And is that uh, self-administered or was that um, done with somebody doing that? For that them? was self-administered. That's homework yeah. you taught the client. Just get your strap, pull your C1 around in the, in the sensitive direction, breathe, mm-hmm. relax for three seconds, do that twice a day for 12 weeks. Yeah. Now, the important considerations there, it's staying within the pain-free range. So it's not like pushing it into something that hurts and that you mm-hmm. shouldn't provoke any other symptoms Besides, you come up to the edge, you could say, of the headache range. You're not yeah. getting any numbness or tingling or nothing, none of that. That's not allowed. Yeah. Staying in that pain-free range, doing that a couple times a day for, for up to 12 weeks, mm-hmm. it really has helped people quite a bit. Yeah. 
And, you know, there may be multiple mechanisms of effect there, you know, we're doing things both with movement of the vertebral structures themselves, but especially the way that you demonstrated that with a belt or strap on your neck, you're, you know, a lot of the people who are advocates of the dermal neural modulation theories and uh, the, the skin pulling and, yeah. and myofascial applications say, hey, we're we're doing all this stuff with the superficial skin and neural receptors in there Absolutely. as well. And that's Absolutely. Mulligan so. straps are a little bit uh, tacky. They have like almost like a yoga, uh, you know, slippery mat kind of yeah. surface on them. And so you really are pulling on the skin. You're getting some of that yeah. drag on the skin and maybe it is cutaneous nerve glide that we're affecting, or maybe it's yep. the brain getting recolored. Or maybe we're turning C1, as the traditional explanation is. Or maybe it's that in combination with something I do to myself that brings me up to some sensation that I sustain and relax into, that I do that a couple times a day. Maybe that makes a big effect. Yeah. And it's probably some of the, all of the above. Some of all of the above. That's right. Yeah. Right. So um, we'll get close to wrapping up here. Anything uh, we were going to just touch base a little bit on some, some, red flags and things to watch out for. Yeah, as we're, that we, we, we should for sure mention those. Should I go through those, Whitney, you think we should? Let's do those? Let's go. You've got a nice little acronym for those there. So let's, let's. Yeah. Based on Anytime we talk about headaches, I make sure to talk about these. Uh, the acronym is SNOOP in S-N-O-O-P because their headaches are a symptom often. They're a symptom of something else. And that something else could be serious. And by diminishing someone's symptom, we could actually delay them getting treatment inadvertently. They could get, oh, it's better. I'm not going to go check this out. And there's some serious things that people should have checked out that the headaches are a sign of. So some of those uh, red flags to watch out for is systemic symptoms. That's the S in SNOOP, such as fever or weight loss or if they have other systemic risk factors like HIV or cancer and they have a headache, that's, you know, they want to be checked out for that. Yeah. The N is neurologic, neurologic symptoms or abnormal neurological signs such as confusion, impaired alertness, um, weakness, a stiffening of the neck, like a, like it seems like it's the neck is just, uh, neck muscles are tense you know, visual disturbances, nystagma, the eyes wiggling, things like that. Those are neurological symptoms that are saying, you know, they need some, they need to see a primary care physician or a specialist. Yeah, for sure. The double O, the first O is the onset. Was it sudden? Was it abrupt? Does it happen in seconds as opposed to minutes? Is it rapid? That's a, that's a red flag. It comes on quickly, the headache. And then the older, second O is the older patient, the older person. And, uh, Whitney, I'm over 50. In fact, I'm almost 60, so I qualify. I think, I don't know Wait. about you. Yeah. Huh. But if you, if, if I, have, yeah, okay. <laughs> so a new headache in an older patient or a progressively worked, worsening headache in a middle-aged patient, that's over 50. We're, we're middle-aged, Whitney, got to admit. Yeah, we are. Okay. And that's- uh, For those of you that don't know, we're, we're pretty close in age there, but he's in his 60s and I'm still in my 50s. Uh, in a few weeks, I will be. Yeah, right. I went up to that, that kind of that, that uh, milestone. When, when is your birthday? Or we shouldn't say that on the air, probably. <laughs> it's in January. I think we talked about this before because mine's in December. So yeah, uh, right. right, yeah. Anyway, happy birthday for you coming up, and me yeah, too. Let right. okay. the P in Snoop, the progression pattern of a previous history of headache, 
Has there, yeah. if they have a previous history, has it changed or progressed? Is there a change in the frequency, the severity, the you know the signs, the clinical features that come with that? Yeah. Or is it first headache like unlike any headache they've had experienced before? Again, that's those are all red flags to say let's get this checked out. And I just can't underline that enough. I know you all know this. I know you hear it on every technique instruction you get, but with headaches in particular. There's some stuff that people want to be under the care of a physician about and the headaches are absolutely. Might be their only yeah. sign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So don't don't hesitate with those red flags to say it's a good idea for somebody else to be looking at this as well. Doesn't mean necessarily you can't do things with That's them, right. but certainly if any of those things are present there, though those would be indicators for um kind of having somebody else be involved. And it's 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 like with great power comes great responsibility. Our power here is we can make most headaches better just with our hands because of all those mechanisms we mentioned. Yep. But that doesn't mean we've uh, ruled them out as uh, still needing to be evaluated perhaps. Yeah. So, so I should, as we wrap up here, I should mention that handout again, it's a dash T dot TV slash TTP dash CGH. We'll put that in the show notes. Anything else you want to make sure we mention Whitney on our way out? Yeah, I think we've we've covered a nice introduction to this um, overall topic here, and we will probably revisit this, I'm sure, somewhere down the road as we look at, uh, you know, some other things like maybe creative treatment strategies and delve into some of our favorite manual and interventions as well. Yeah, um, right. uh, yeah, some some really good places to get started looking at uh, the role of cervicogenic headaches here today. So, uh, yeah, so that's that sounds good. So um, I think we're gonna. Wrap up here. We've got a message from um, also one of our other sponsors for the podcast, uh, right? To wrap up here. Yep. Handspring. And the story there is when I was wanting to publish a book myself, the Advanced Myofascial Technique Series, I got two offers. One was from a large international media conglomerate, which I was flattered about. And then the other was from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. And I'm glad I chose them. I chose the small guy because not only did they help really help me make the books I wanted to make, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written, especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals, they say, who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And Handspring has a new webinar series called Moved to Learn, which are free 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors, including one from Till on there. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out and be sure to use the code TTP, like the Thinking Practitioner, at checkout for a discount. So we thank Handspring very much for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, and always thank our other sponsors that we have for the podcast too. You help us get this show out to everybody. So we certainly do appreciate that. You can stop by our sites for show notes, uh, the handout till mentioned earlier to you as well, transcripts and extras over there. Um, we'll have that stuff posted, uh, through our sites. Mine is at academyofclinicalmassage.com and till where can people find that over on your site? Advanced-trainings.com, the, the blog or podcast link right up at the top. Uh, if you have questions that you would like to hear us talk about or just comments you want to make, I love hearing from you. It's really great always to get your questions or comments. You can email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media. I'm at Till Luca, T-I-L-L-U-C-H-A-U. How about you, Whitney? 
Uh, also under my name on social media, Whitney Lowe. Uh, you can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever your podcasts are that you listen to. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen and do share the news, tell a friend. And again, we do thank you for being a listener of the podcast and helping to um, get the news around everywhere. So thanks everybody. And um, we'll be back here in another couple weeks with um, another adventure down the manual therapy hole somewhere. Thanks Whitney. Okay. Sounds good. We'll see you then. <laughs>